Good evening, thanks for coming. Um, tonight's shir was dedicated by uh, Ina Kaihut in honor of her grandmother's yurtzeit on the 17th of Kislev. Sarah Bas Hirsch, may this be a great, great aliyah, a great elevation for her neshama. May she be elevated to the greatest of heights and channel lots of brachas down to you um, and your family for only mazel and only bracha and only for good things. Thanks so much for this dedication. Uh, the other dedication tonight was on the CD. Um, this is by... By, on the Shear and the CD this week. This is by my dear friend, Reb Shleimer Goldner. This is in honor of his mother's yard site, Belima Reuza Bas Reb Avram Shleimer, whose yard site is going to be this Shabbos, the 16th of Kislev. May her neshama have an awesome aliyah. May she channel lots of blessings to you and to your family with only bracha, mazel, and good things and much, 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 and miracles. It's a month of miracles, and a geula and redemption from everything that uh, can be interfering in your good work, in all the good things you do, especially for us at Mayan Yisrael. So much, much, much bracha, and thank you so much. Another dedication tonight was by my dear friend, Rabbi Aaron Perry, and this is in honor of his father's yard site, also this week, Rabbi Avram Shmuel ben Rameir Halevi, may his neshama be elevated to the greatest of heights and much, much bracha mazel. And only big Yeshua's to you and only, only good things. Thanks to all those who dedicate. Um, we are, this week is Parshas Vayishlach and a very exciting Torah portion. I want to deviate a little bit from the regular class. Um, we will study something Related to the, of course, related to the Parsha, related to the Haftorah, but particularly uh, to zero in on uh, current events that are happening in the world and trying to see what kind of guidance and what kind of inspiration we get from what the Torah tells us, both in the Parsha and in the time of the year that we're in. is a very special month, the month of Kislev, our holidays this month, Hanukkah and other Hasidic holidays, and I'd like to do, draw some kind of um, inspiration from this auspicious time to relate to the times that we're in. We are in the midst of great confusion as the world is spinning out of control around us. And as much as our daily lives have not been interfered, so it's possible to like kind of ignore it, but the world is in a sense, falling apart, or it looks like it's falling apart. Crazy things are happening. And we, you know, we can still go to the market and, and have sushi for lunch and kind of pretend that nothing is happening as long as my life is doing its, you know, as long as I can still go to do my exercise and do my this and do my that. Everybody's busy doing their thing. But um, the world is changing. And... Um, and I've been saying, and I guess this is the perspective you're going to be getting tonight, is that this is not just ordinary turmoil, but this is the birth of Mashiach in the world. Uh, we are living now in Matzai Shemitah, 
It is the conclusion of the Shemitah year. Last year was a Shemitah year. These few months from Rosh Hashanah, when the tension begins in Israel, related to the Har Habayis, related to the Temple Mount, which we all know is the source of all the unrest that's in the world, um, is is uh, these months that we are right now is considered Matzai Shemitah, which is the most auspicious time for the coming of Mashiach. We've spoken a lot about the greatness of last year leading into this year as being the time of the conclusion of the exile. So I think that not only can we hear the footsteps of Mashiach in the distance, but I think they're thundering they're thundering loud, these steps. And we have to pay attention. And we need to wake up and we need to prepare ourselves because um, there isn't time. There isn't much time left. So um, let's just get a little see what's, 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 what's part of this whole bewilderment of what's going on. So the first is the painful reality and the horrible news that is continuously coming out of Eretz Yisrael we're, you know, we're almost daily Jews have been killed or at least attempted to be killed and many have been injured and we're holding already by I think 22 Jews who lost their lives um, in this murderous antifada um, if we start a little bit in, from last year I think there was another two the couple that was killed before Rosh Hashanah um, this is terrible right? and our hearts bleed and how much tears we shed every time we hear. And just now, the loss of a young girl, a beautiful girl, just yesterday and today, another soldier. This is really, really, really painful, and it rips our heart. And uh, definitely, the Chavli Mashiach, the, the, the birth of Mashiach in the world, we don't, we, we don't know why there has to be already any pain, why it can't come peacefully. Well, I don't have an explanation for that. We never have an explanation for the spilling of Jewish blood. And we don't want to hear an explanation. We just want it to stop, and we want the Gi'ula Shalema. In addition to that, we notice the very, very fickle response from the government of Israel to what's going on. We're talking about a, one of the mightiest armies in the world, and not only that, but definitely the most intelligent army in the world with great brains. There is no doubt that they can put a stop to these daily stabbings if they only wanted to. It's only because of the, our Jewish insecurity and our feelings of inferiority that we have in front of the Gentiles. And we're looking all the time of what our loving Gentile neighbors will say that we're afraid to stick, pick up the stick and make order. And that is a very, very big shame. So that's something else that is very frustrating. So we have the pain from what's happening and the frustration from that we really, it's in our hands to help the situation, but we're not doing that because of our own, uh, of our own weakness, uh, which shouldn't be, which really shouldn't be. And then we take a look at the world at large, which is supposed to be a civilized world, which is supposed to be an advanced world, turning a blind eye to that immense suffering and, and either ignoring the events that are happening, the daily bloodshed, and if not ignoring it, really not making a big deal about it, 
and if wherever they can, putting a spin on it, which makes the Jewish people look like the aggressors to the poor Palestinians. That is also very shocking. Part of this great mess that we're seeing right at the onset, right before Mashiach comes. A very, very clear display of horrific anti-Semitism. Then, the bloodthirsty terrorists whose lusts for blood is not satisfied with just Jewish blood have turned their attention to Europe and to wreak havoc in everywhere they literally can. And the indiscriminate discriminate killing of innocents around the globe, particularly in France, in Paris the other week, the killing of so many people, which has to hurt and bring a lot of grief and pain to every human being. Um, and the mess that it has caused and the fear that it has put to so many people around the world, and we just have this, a, a city in lockdown for two days. I mean, the world is crazy. It's, it's mamish nuts. And that, that too is like well, part of this, what's, what's, what's the, the storm, the storm right before Mashiach comes. The drumbeats of war, of nations that are kind of at the brink of, of, of war that's happening right now from Russia, from France, and others to try to put an end to this, what we might, what we see as this, this, this horrific cancer. But no one really having an idea of what exactly needs to be done and how to do this. But again, you see, again, these are all signs of Mashiach. You know, the sages say when you hear, when you see the nations are kind of rubbing against each other. Um, all of this is very, very Mashiachtic. In the midst of all this carnage, and in the midst of all this chaos, we find something exquisitely beautiful. Something that caught my attention, which I'd like to uh, mention tonight. Uh, a wedding, a very special wedding, taking place this week Thursday in the Holy Land. There is a, a girl, her name is Sarah Littman. She was a bride, she is a bride. And um, she, her family was on her way, on their way, just two weeks ago to celebrate Shabbos, the Afruf, which is the, the uh, calling up to the Torah of the chassan, the groom, the Shabbos before his wedding. So the custom is that you know, there is a celebration that is made at the shul, at the place where the chassan davens. The kala stays kind of home because the chassan and kala are not really supposed to meet in the close days before the wedding. But the bride of the, the, the family of the bride many times goes to celebrate with the groom. And so was in this case. The car Friday with the family members of the bride were traveling in Hebron, in Hebron, in Hebron to, the, to, the, to go to the, for Shabbos to their cousins, to their, uh, to their sisters and daughters, uh, um, um, the Shabbos Kala or the Afruf. And when they were ambushed by a car full of terrorists and they splattered the car with bullets, and two of the, the father and the brother of the bride were killed, very sadly and very tragically. Um, in the midst of, so when you see the worst and the most ugly side of human beings possible, of 
the subhuman terrorists being displayed. Also, a visit by an ambulance that comes by, which is supposed to represent the Red Cross, which is like the caring of the rights and the caring for the lives of all human beings, everybody included, stops by and sees that there are Jewish people that are injured, and then they decide just to continue driving off and ignore the wounded, which in this case the boy probably or could have, might have been saved his life, but they just decided to drive away, where you see the ugliness of how low people can stoop in their hatred and, and animosity against the Jewish people. Yet side by side comes the most beautiful thing I have seen in a long time. The bride sitting Shiva on the day that her wedding was supposed to take place. Of course the wedding was canceled because you generally don't cancel the Jewish wedding. But when it's the closest relative and you have to sit Shiva, then the Shiva will cancel the wedding. So the bride is sitting Shiva and she was interviewed and she says, tonight instead of wearing my gown and being at my wedding, I am going to be sitting with torn clothing on the floor. I can imagine the devastation of a girl who's ready to get married, and now this horror happens in her life. Yet she says that she will not give in to the grief, and that we will get married. Not only we will get they postpone the wedding for a week, next week we're going to get married. But not only are we going to make it, we're not going to make just a regular wedding. We're going to make a very, very big wedding. And we're going to make a wedding, and they went and they, they took a stadium. Which is a big stadium in Yerushalayim. And they're inviting all the Jewish people to their wedding. All of Israel and all the Jewish people are invited to her wedding. And people will come. It's going to take place this Thursday night. And they say, this is going to, she says, this is going to be a million person wedding. And everybody's going to come make us happy. And she quotes on her invitation. She quotes the Pasuk, the verse. The Pasuk she quotes is from Micha. Altismichi oyafti li. Don't rejoice, my enemies, over me. Kinofalti, because even if I have fallen, kamti, I will stand up. I have gotten up. So let the world know that the Jewish spirit and the Jewish people will never be defeated. So she's getting up and having her wedding. And instead of it being a little simcha, it's going to be a joy on a grand scale. Hopefully her father and her brother will be there already as well. As the Pasuk continues, Ki even if I am cast into darkness, Hashem early, God is my light. This is testimony to the eternity of the Jewish people, to the power of the Jewish people. It's very, very heartwarming. On the, on the invitation, I saw a copy of the invitation. Um, literally, everybody's invited. If you want to pick yourself up and go to Israel, you're invited to the wedding. Um, it, in the invitation, it says, "Hisnari may offer kumi, get up from the dirt, shake yourself up from the dust, may offer from the earth kumi, get up." Livshi bigte, the songs that the words that come from the Kabbalah Shabbos that we say, livshi get dressed, big day sefartech, and your splendid clothing, ami my people. This is the call for the Jewish people to get up, get up, get out of exile. Now watch this beautiful bride with incredible courage and with incredible power that has come to her from above, an inspiration that is so unbelievable. What she didn't realize is that she picked a very, 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 very auspicious date for her wedding.
The date that was rearranged, not her initial date, is the 14th of Kislev, which is going to be this Thursday. And this is a day, what's so special about the date? A great tzaddik, a super great tzaddik, had actually, in a sense, I think, prophesied this wedding 24 years ago, where the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York spoke about the day of the 14th of Kislev. It happens to be his anniversary, the Rebbe's marriage anniversary, where he discusses that this is the quintessential day of marriage and the union between the Jewish people and God is on the 15th of, 14th and 15th of Kislev, as should be discussed. And what's so amazing is that this, and in that Shabbos talk, which is the last year that we heard the Lubavitcher Rebbe speak, in a world, by the way, just to comment parenthetically, in a world where there is such confusion, and the world where there's such chaos, and there's so, such insecurity and indecisiveness, what was so beautiful to be heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe is that whenever he spoke, it was so crystal clear. There was no, there was no, um, everything was with such decisiveness, with such clear, there was never any doubt in his words. Everything was so prophetic and so on the mark all the time when he spoke about the situation of Israel, the situation of giving back land, where that's going to lead us. Years before, even anybody ever imagined when the great Torah scholars in general thought that we will appease the Arabs by giving them back and giving them back and something will be gained, the Rebbe cried and called out again and again and again. And he spoke exactly about what was going to happen. So in that, the year, this is in the year 5752, in, the, in Parshas Vayishlach, this week's Shabbos, the Fabrengen that he gives is just so, oh, it's crazy. The whole thing is just so, the words are so, are so himmelish. You see that there's, that he's seeing something, he's seeing something and you know, the Rebbe's vision was always that he can speak now and really whatever he says, like then it comes 20 years later and you say, ah, so that's what he was talking about. So in that discourse, he speaks about the wedding, about this, of the date of the 15th, of 14th, 15th of Kislev. And then he goes into a whole discussion about France and the France's relationship to the ultimate, to the coming of Mashiach. That the Giyula Shalema, the coming of Mashiach, is related to France. And he connects it to the Haftorah of this week's Torah portion. The Haftorah of Patras Vayishlach talks about, being that Vayishlach talks about Yaakov and Esau, so it talks about the vision that the great prophet Ovadia, who is a, who is a ger, who is a convert from a descendant of Esau, he says, speaks of the vision the prophecies of the end of days of what is going to happen to Esau, descendants of Esau. So all the way at the conclusion of the prophecy, in the last psukim, the book of Avadia is one chapter. So the Haftorah we read this Shabbos is in the entire book of Avadia. It basically speaks of the destiny of Esau. The second to the last verse, I mentioned it a few weeks ago when I spoke about the way the Canaanim, when I spoke about the Syrians going to Germany, which are the, so that very same possible. So it says like this, and the exiles of the host, and the exiles of this host of Israelites, Yisrael, to the Jewish people, the northern kingdom, who are dispersed among the Canaanites, at Tsarfas, as far as Tsarfas, which is France, and the exiles of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, 
that are in Spain. Yershu es Are Hanegev will take possession of the land of Israel's southern cities. So there is some kind of a prophecy over here, which, I mean, just reading it in the Navi, seems to be talking about a return from exiles that are going to be leaving France, and they're going to be settling in the Negev, in the southern parts of Israel. They're going to inherit the lands of Israel. Okay, so that's already and somehow happening, in which there is a massive exodus, especially of the Jews of France, leaving France, and going to, the, to Eretz Yisrael. But in the Rebbe's talk, in that Shabbos, he mentioned some spectacular things about France itself. Because really, like, what really is Negea to tell us? He asked the question, that the Jews, okay, the, the, the Jews going to France, these were Jews who went, we're talking about Jews who went there at the conclusion of the first base on Migdash. We're talking about even way back, even before the second temple. There were Jews that ended up going all the way into, deep into Europe and went and got to France. So really, if the prophet, if the prophet is talking about what's going to happen thousands of years later, what really is it important to, to speak about France? It's the exiles, the Jewish people are coming back from everywhere. And that he says is an indication that the geula, the actual geula, is related to the Jews in France and to France at large. So now that we've suddenly seen that there is such a upheaval in Paris, right at this time, when as we mentioned earlier, all the signs are pointing to Mashiach, this is, this is something to be noticed. So what I would like to do tonight is I'd like to just share some of the points of that discourse of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the year 5752, 24 years ago, in which he talks about, again, this, this, uh, this, this, uh, the happenings related to France as he derives certain things from the Parsha. And of course, I'm not quoting word for word. You can look it up in print and read it. It was delivered on Shabbos. And the Rebbe himself edited it after Shabbos and put footnotes. And it's really, really fascinating. So, and, and of course, what I am saying now is not quoting verbatim at all. I'm actually giving some commentary and trying to explain and explain the various different parts as it relates to what's happening now. So it's not because I'm saying that this is what the Rebbe said. I'm just, some of what I am saying is based on what it says over there and applying it to what I think is happening and going on. Okay, so the first interesting idea is that um, Parshas Vayishlach and Parshas Vayeshev in particularly have a very deep connection to the state of where the Jewish people are standing right now. Um, Right now we have already completed our mission and our work that which we needed to do in exile. We've done. Now we're standing just moments as we're waiting for the redemption to happen. Parshas Vayishlach is exactly that state in the life of our fathers. Because Yaakov Avinu, we know, was, the, was the, our forefather who was the, the person who went, we, also, we all know Misa Avesim and Labanim, the actions of the fathers are the sign for the children. So if our forefathers, Avram, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, did not, did not experience something and accomplish whatever it was to accomplish, then we would not have the ability to achieve what we needs to be achieved. They achieve it first for us, giving us the empowerment. 
part of the Jewish people's mission in this world is going to be accomplished in exile. Not just part, the primary accomplishment of what the Jewish people need to do in the world is accomplished during exile. And the one of the, our forefathers who went to exile was Yaakov. And as we spoke about it last week, Yaakov is the forerunner for the exile. He's the one who leaves the land of, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. He goes down to a land, a hostile land, a dangerous land, and a land full of corruption, full of lies. And we spoke about it last week. The point of Yaakov going down to Haran, as we spoke last week, was to hunt for sparks of holiness, to elevate them, to rectify them, and to purify a place, a, a, a place in the world that up till that time was very dark, to bring godliness and holiness in that place. In the words of the Kabbalists, that means collecting sparks. Yaakov was there for 20 years. It was a very, very, very difficult time in his life. And Yaakov accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish. At the conclusion of that 20 years, he's now returning to the land of Israel. When Yaakov comes back to the land of Israel, what does that mean? That means the Jewish people coming back from exile. Yaakov goes to, in last week when Yaakov goes to Haran, that's the Jewish people going to exile. Just like Yaakov spends all of his time there in order to accumulate the wealth of Haran, so too we do the same thing. We go in amongst the nations to accumulate the wealth of nations, meaning the spiritual wealth of nations. Sages tell us that the Jewish people were not scattered that scattered the Jewish people amongst the nations for any other reason but that we should serve as a magnet and we should pick up gerim converts, which as explained so many times in this class, means not just people that convert, because we haven't really been that big in making converts. That's not our thing. It means that we take the various different aspects of the, of the unholy world and we use it and we implement it in our Yiddishkeit. Thereby, we bring Kedusha to the entire planet. And that's the idea. When we're finished that job, it's time to go back to Eretz Yisrael. We finish the work of Birur. Now I do want to make an interesting statement. The Lubavitcher Rebbe in that discourse makes a very astounding, powerful statement, which you can only say that if you're a Rebbe, and you know what's really going on. He says over there as follows, he says that the Jewish people need to know that the work of rectifying sparks is over. Again, he says this again in 1992. The work of elevating sparks and refining the world is over. That means we've done that. We fixed the planet. The concept of tikkun olam, fixing the world, is done. And people who hear this will say, Gewald, what are you talking about? The world has never been a bigger mess. This is what you call a fixed world? What do you mean? That's because our eyes are human, fleshy eyes. When we see things, we see the most external, superficial, outside, chitzainius of things. We don't see things deeply. You need the eyes of a tzaddik who can see. See, if I see a piece of chicken, I see chicken. When a tzaddik looks at it, he doesn't see chicken. He sees a spark of holiness waiting to be elevated. I think most of the people listening to this year are more like, like me. So you don't see sparks. What do you we see sparks? We don't know this. So we don't really know. But the Rebbe says that the work of elevating the world and purifying, the work which we were supposed to accomplish in Gullahs, is done. Therefore, he says already then, 24 years ago, 
there's absolutely no explanation why Mashiach isn't here yet. If that's the work that we need to do in Golis. And that's a question the Rebbe leaves by a question. Why is Mashiach not here yet? But whatever he does make the, the, color, the correlation is that we're like Yaakov coming back. Now, Yaakov has another task. When he comes back from Haran and he goes back to Eretz Yisrael, he has to pass through Esav. And that's what takes us into this week's parasha, where Yaakov sends the messengers to Esav. He sends the malachim to Esav, and Esav is provoked. He comes out against him with 400 men. It's scary. It's Yaakov panics. He cries out to God. He divides his family into two groups. He's planning. He sends a huge bribery gift to Esav. Finally, they have an encounter, and like as the drama unfolds, it's unbelievable. At the last moment, Esav really wants to sink his teeth into his neck and bite him and kill him with his own teeth. Um, at, at, that, at, 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 at that very, very pivotal moment, he has a change of heart, and he becomes Yaakov's, and he feels brotherly love, and they embrace, and they kiss, and they hug. A real Mashiach moment. But really, let's think about it. What, what is the significance of that encounter? And we see it's really unbelievable to relate it to what we're seeing in the world. Because, see, on, on a simple level, Yaakov is intending to go back to the land of Israel. All he wants is to go back, like it says next week in the parish of Yaakov Be'eretz Megure Aviv. He wants to already live in Mashiach. He wants to be in the land where his fathers lived. He wants to come out of Gullus. Don't bother me with Esau. Don't bother me with anything. I just want tranquility. So it says next week, Bikesh Yaakov Yaakov wants to sit in peace. What does it mean Yaakov wants to sit in peace? The world is dark. The world is on fire. The world is a mess. You want to sit in peace? The answer is, Yaakov, was, Yaakov thought he already accomplished everything. He got the work done. Mashiach is already ready to come. He wants shalva. He wants the real peace. doesn't mean that Yaakov wanted to sit on a, on a, on a, on a reclined, on a, on a beach chair next to a swimming pool and drink a martini. Bikesh Yaakov, people think that. It's crazy. Well, you learn Torah without deeper understanding. It's so ridiculous. Yaakov doesn't want shalva, tranquility. He wants Mashiach. And then there isn't going to be any more hostility in the world. There isn't going to be anything against Kedusha, against holiness. But what is Yaakov? It's interesting. So he comes back and he has to deal with his brother Esau. So the Kabbalists tell us that it's not that... Oh, so how, would, so how do we understand this whole message, this whole shlichus? Is since Esau is on the way, so he has to figure out a way how to like sneak past Esau. So he tries to like go by unprovoking him, but it doesn't happen. So Esau is coming against him. So he tries to like maneuver his way around, and so he has to finally has to face him. He has this encounter. God saves him. Esau goes on his way. So, but according to this, all he wants is really just to circumvent Esau. But in truth, what really is going on is that Yaakov needs, in order for him to go to Mashiach, he cannot come himself. He has to come together with Esau. Part of the messianic. Mashiach's, the prophecies of Mashiach, prophesies a world where Yaakov and Esav are finally standing together as loving brothers. It says, We say it every day in the, in the, in the end of the Az Yashir, before Yishtabach. Those that were saved will go up on the mountain of Tzion to judge the mountain of Esav. So simply everybody, people, when you learn it just on a simple level, it means to punish Esau for all the cruelty. We're going to go up on the Temple Mount, on the Beis Amigdash. And then from there, we're going to sit down and we're going to judge, which means Esau is finally going 
to be punished, for all the robbery and all the plunder and all the killing that went on for 2,000 years as Jews were making their way through the Western Christian countries, massacred in pogroms. Esav needs to be held accountable for all of that and the Holocaust and all what else came out from Esav. That's the simple interpretation, looking at things again superficially. The deeper interpretation, according to Hasidis, according to the Hasidic masters, according to the Kabbalists, is that Lishpait Esav Esav means that the ultimate judgment of Esav is that Esav is transformed and Esav becomes a mensch. Esav becomes a decent human being who is here to assist his brother Yaakov and assist the Jewish people in ushering in a time of holiness into the world. So Esav, and that is because you see from the very beginning that Esav is not like Yishmael. See, Yishmael is kicked out of the house. Right away, Yisara says, get rid of him. And Avram doesn't want to like to do it, but he does it, and he kicks him out. Esav is not that way. Yitzchak doesn't kick Esav out of the house. Yitzchak has this, this, this strange, mysterious love for Esav. Rivka has a hard time with it, but, 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 but Yitzchak has this love for Esav. Yitzchak doesn't make any mistakes. We spoke about Yitzchak two weeks ago. Yitzchak was like, <laughs> Yitzchak is the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the human being after the Akedah, he already got burnt up for God. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's ashes. He's one. He's, he's the carbon. He's the, as close as a human being can ever get to becoming one with God is Yitzchak. Yitzchak doesn't make any mistakes. Yitzchak looks at Esav and sees enormous power in Esav. And that is what the Kabbalists tell us, that Esav, which in general means the Esav descendants, not just Esav, Esav and all his descendants, possess spiritual raw energy that's very, very powerful higher than the source of the energy of the Jewish people. That's why Esau is called Benah HaGadol. He's the big boy. He's the strong one. Yaakov is the little kid. Benah HaKatan. That also means in terms of spiritual quality. The spiritual quality of Yaakov is of a lesser dynamic than the spiritual qualities of Esau. It's only that Esau can't handle his high energy. And therefore he has what we call a Shvira Sakelem, a broken vessel. And he becomes a total mess. He becomes a total addict. He doesn't know what to do with all his energy. And he becomes a... He's a wild boar. Uh, what, what, what Yitzchak wanted was to rectify Esav, as we spoke many times, by giving him blessings and help Esav rehabilitate himself. The problem is Esav can't rehabilitate himself. He can't do it on his own. He's too much of a mess. So that became the task of Yaakov now, to help his brother Esau. That's why Yitzchak gives the blessings to Yaakov. But as we once discussed, these are not really Yaakov's blessings. These are, ya- these are, these are Esau's blessings given to Yaakov. That's why Yaakov is at that time dressed like Esau. He calls himself Esau because they're really Esau's blessings. It's just that that, those, that power that Yitzchak gave for the fixing of Esau, Yaakov is going to have to apply it to work and help his brother Esau. Now, when Yaakov is finished rectifying the, the greater world and does a tikkun and a purification in the greater world, he doesn't forget where he got his blessings and who his blessings were for, for Esau. So Yaakov knows he needs to get Esau to join him, so to go greet Mashiach in order to be able to come to the ultimate world of tranquility of the coming of Mashiach, the ultimate perfected world, he can only march to the Geula together with his brother Esau. So Yaakov sends messages to Esav, and basically Yaakov is saying, hey, my brother, I'm ready. Are you willing to come? 
Esau, when the messengers come back, they see that Esau is marching with 400 men. What really that said to Yaakov is that Esau isn't at all. Even though you did your job in terms of your purification and your elevation of the world that you needed to do, Esau is still in a fallen state. When Yaakov realizes that, he realizes it's going to take thousands of years of his descendants working in the lands of Esau in order to do a tikkun of Esau. That's going to take a long time. But here's just an interesting idea now to, to understand is what Yaakov does do you see, the power of Esav is, as we mentioned earlier, there's a Kabbalistic idea called Toihu and Tikkun. Toihu means um, a world of chaos. Tikkun means a world of rectification. So the Kabbalists say that before God created this present world that we have today, which is called Olam HaTikkun, a rectified, kind of organized world, there was this very sublime world called the world of Toihu, in which there was a very, very, very great, powerful energy powerful radiance of godly light. And that energy, however, the vessels, the containers of that world were not able to host, were not able to facilitate the intense rays, the intense godly light that was shining in those worlds, so those vessels collapsed. As those vessels collapsed, they fall, they fall into this world, and the energies associated with those vessels were retracted back into the source. See, let's imagine that again powerful energies that God emanated into those vessels to serve as the power in creation. The vessels couldn't hold that energy, they collapsed. So what happened to the energy? The infinite energy, re- re- when there's no vessel, what happened? when there's no student, the teacher doesn't teach. Meaning the energy goes back where? Into its source. What does God do after that? He creates stronger vessels, bigger. Le- he emanates stronger vessels, bigger vessels, broader vessels. And he reduces the light dramatically, the energy dramatically. Now there is a commensurate, now there is a, an adjustment between the lights and the vessels. It works together. That's called the world of Tikkun. The source of the Jewish souls, the source of Yaakov, is in the second world. The world, the, the constructed world, the world that can last. The source of Esau is in that chaotic world of Toyo. So even though once he collapses, he becomes a monster... But in his source, he is connected to those lights. The coming of Mashiach, the reason why we need Esav, is because Yaakov himself, even though Yaakov creates a beautiful world of holiness, it's lacking energy. Because the energy of Yaakov is only the minuscule light of the second world called the world of Tikkun. It's not powerful, it's not strong. In order for him, for Yaakov to have the Giyula, we have to connect what's called the Kabbalistic formula. Kabbalistic formula means like this, the lights of Toihu, of the chaotic world, that infinite energy that which the vessels couldn't hold, but we need to draw that down into the vessels of Torah and mitzvahs, which is the vessels of Tikkun. That means we have to have a Jewish world constructed with Jewish vessels, but then we have to bring the Gentile energy from Esau to draw his light down into those vessels. And then we have the perfect uh, uh, um, um, union of what God intended in creation. That's why Yaakov, so when Yaakov sees that Esau, physical brother, Esau is a mess, Yaakov sends, he says, okay, I can't, I can't rectify him yet, but let me at least try to get his lights, let me try to get his energy down from his lofty place. So what does he do? That's why he sends him a gift. The gift, even though it looked like the gift was to his physical brother Esau, what he was really sending was 
he was sending a, a something, what we call a karban. It was called a mincha, it was called a karban, it was a sacrifice. He was sending a sacrifice to the godly source of Esau to draw forth those powerful lights from the world of Esau, from the world of Tayo. That's why the, the karbanos, we once mentioned in an early class, that's why the sacrifices that he, that he sent in this karban were not kosher animals. He sent them camels, donkeys, usually in a, in a mincha, in a karban, you can only bring kosher animals. So the Balatanya says, the reason is because this order that we can only bring kosher, all these limitations, this is only in the world of tikkun. But since this was a special gift to elicit the sublime lights and energies and potent powers of Esav, it doesn't have the same rules. The karbanos, we don't know those karbanos because our karbanos that were given to us were Torah karbanos in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus. That's to draw down the lights of Tikkun. But to draw down the lights of Toyu, it's a whole different order that Yaakov knew. And Yaakov was, was eliciting that. Well, it worked. You know what it worked? He accomplished that to a certain degree. That later when he met Esav, even though Esav was still a, a, a wreck, for the moment that he met Yaakov, Esav had a total metamorphosis. And for that moment, he's, again, he's harboring anger and hatred to him. He wants to shred him to pieces. And Esav is a man who when he's born, he's born red like a beet. That means, can, can you imagine Esav when he's angry? And can you imagine when Esav is sitting and for 20 years he's boiling in his anger and he, for his brother who deceived him. He has him now in his hands. He's ready to, 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 to rip him to pieces. And yet, he embraces him and Rashi says, you kissed him with his entire heart. Because this is the, this is the messianic Esav. This is not Esav of now, this is the future Esav of Mashiach. This was a beautiful moment. But it lasted only for a moment. And then everything goes back. Esav went back to his way, and the Jews are going to deal with Esav for thousands of years until Mashiach comes. Now I want to ask the question. So what do we see from here? That right before Mashiach comes, there has to be an alliance between Yaakov and Esav. Mashiach's coming requires a participation of Esav, which is part of what we called earlier the rectification of the world. First we rectify a general rectification in the world that's working in the sheep of Lavan, as we spoke last week. The last and final fixing is the fixing of Esav. Now who is Esav? So the way we've always understood it in Jewish tradition is that Esav ends up being Rome and eventually Esav evolves into the entire Western world. So the Jews live in Western countries in Europe for hundreds of years, persecuted, really living through very, 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 very difficult times. And we wonder, like, has there been a rectification? Has there been a transformation? Has there been something fixed in Esau? So here's a, so, so there's a few things that we need to understand when it comes to a birur. When it comes to any kind of purification, what we call birurim, birurim means that there's good potential mixed with klipa, mixed with shell. Good and bad is mixed together. So when you take gold out of the ground, out of the, out of a, you excavate gold, or diamonds, or whatever it is, it's never clean. It's mixed with, 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 with whatever, with sediments, earth, uh, things that are not part of the gold. And you have to clean it, and you have to melt it. It's a, it's a difficult process. And you melt it, you put it through, and you try to, and you extract the gold from the... In the process of extraction, two things happen. The gold becomes more brilliant and shining and more beautiful. 
and the dregs that are coming out, the schmutz becomes schmutzier, becomes uglier. So when people look at the world and you see a lot of darkness and a lot of evil in today's world, and I mentioned earlier that the Rebbe says that the world is already ready for Mashiach and we finished already the rectification, the work of separating. See, our work is the separation, not necessarily the cleanup. After you separate the gold from the schmutz, there is a pond, there's a lot of schmutz over there, a lot of dirt. There's a lot of gold. There's pure gold. Now it's easier, but here's the thing. The gain is, it's, even though it's really ugly, the dirt, it's easy to wipe it away because it's identified. It's very clear what is the dirt and what is clean. So exactly how this beer is in all of its details and sub-details, of course, I don't know. And I can't tell you. But here's a thought which I think, and I might be wrong, and please Hashem forgive me if I am, but I think there is truth to that which I'm trying to say. And it, it implies that from, again, the various different teachings of Hasidus. Where have we made an excavation or an extraction in Esau? So there's, I think there's two aspects to it. Number one, after Jews spent thousands of, uh, about a thousand years in Europe, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs in all the various different countries, um, there was a beer, a, rect- a separation of good and bad in Europe. Now the gold, the gold of Europe, the cleaned Esav, I think, moved over and came to America. America was founded by people that had a very, very, very strong sense of morality, decency, a belief in God. Its foundation is very, very good and very pure. The founding fathers of the country created a system, created a, 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 a world that is the, the most, the most, the finest world possible until Mashiach comes and, 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 and you have the ultimate, the ultimate good world. But you had a world that gave respect and freedom for all. I mean, eventually, it didn't happen immediately. And that it, it, it's the and here's the thing: the animosity and the hatred that that the old Christian world had to the Jewish people, we did not have in the American world. And the American Christian is a whole different breed. And their and 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 their um, um, uh, um, relationship. First of all, it's built on Judeo-Christian values, not on just Christian ideas, but Judeo-Christian values. And the support for the Jewish people, first of all, the freedom that they've given the Jewish people, and the support, particularly as we're getting closer and closer to Mashiach, in which it's becoming stronger and stronger in the Christian world to support the Jewish people and support the land of Israel, in which they give millions of dollars and help and stand up for is very, very unique and it's very special. To me, it looks like that was part of this extraction, part of this separation of goodness from that which is ugly. What happened to Europe in the last, whatever, hundred or so years? Well, there's a lot of ugliness left over. And the Jews eventually had to leave. Most of the Jews had left Europe. And what happened? Well, you left, you left over with, with real evil, the Germans did and massacred and the Ukrainians joined them and others were very happy to allow for the Jewish people to be massacred in Europe. That was like the worst dregs left over after the bitter, after the purification. But it's interesting, in America itself, 
the, what we might call the new Esav that moved over into the United States is interesting. Also, because the Jews came over to America afterwards and it began the process, because when you filter gold, you filter it once, and then you put the gold back into the, into the whatever, the kiln or whatever it is that you, that you, that you clean it up, and you do what's called a biroshani, a second purification. And what was considered before pure is really not that pure because you can get it even purer. So in America itself, when Jews came to the United States and Torah mitzvahs and the like, you start seeing within America itself a big split between people that stand for morality and goodness and ideas, Bible-oriented um, values of decency, modesty, goodness, and again, support for the Jewish people. And then on the other hand, you have so much in a split within the American country, maybe probably a lot of the media, a lot of the college education system, and uh, all the way up to the State Department and in other aspects of government which we don't want to talk about, which is also, which is again, you see split friends of Israel, friends of the Jewish people, and enemies of, of Israel. So that's a, a split with an ace of itself. Okay. I think the purest of the pure of Esau, of rectification, is within America itself. What would you call it? The Christian right. A certain pure, pure um, moral and supporting. Now, of course, again, until Mashiach comes, nothing is perfect. But at least you have a complete different type of a Gentile than what we dealt with back then. Now, the interesting thing, however, is that in that discourse that I mentioned earlier, where the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke on that Shabbos, he said a fascinating thing. He said that after we finish completing the rectification of the world, which happens when we come to America, in which we do the last and final purification, he says the last purification of Esau, and which we've done, is when we have an impact on France. And of course, the Rebbe is a great mystic, and he says, when we've purified and done a birur in the country of France, that's the, what he calls birurim hayoser achronim, the very last rectification. And when we complete the birur of France, then we've completed the purification of all of humanity and all of the world. He says the word tsarfas, in Hebrew, France, is called tsarfas. Tsarfas is the same word as tsiruf. Tsiruf means to separate, to purify. So the final purification happens in France. He says, what is the great novelty of the purification of France? And that is as follows. He says, in general, the great tzaddikim, the great saintly Jewish masters and teachers were always scared of France. Because France represented a force, a klipa, a, a, a shell that was very antithetical to Jewish values and to the spirit of holiness. France brought emancipation, it brought the enlightenment to the world, but unlike the enlightenment, the freedom that America brought, America's freedom was based on 
a belief in God, and one God, which was put into the Constitution, which, by the way, mentioned before the two sides of America. One stands very strongly for having God and a Constitution, a Constitution believing in one, one nation under one God, and the other one is trying to eliminate any trace of God from, from the... Right? So that's the purification in America. In France, when there was... A, see, on the one hand, you know, Napoleon and... and, and uh, see, the, uh, the, the French Revolution um, removed from, brought the world out of the Dark Ages in terms of the having to be under the various different kings, monarchies, and the like, which were forces of oppression. So generally, freedom is a good thing. You're giving people the ability to choose to live their lives the right way. But if it's based on a fear of God and you have accountability, then you have a perfect world. But if it's not based on a fear of God and there's no accountability and it's just a freedom from religion and a freedom from any... That, uh, that could be very dangerous. That's why we find that the early tzaddikim were very scared of France. When Napoleon fought his war, um, there were a great dispute amongst the great Hasidic masters of who to support. The Balatanya was one of those who were vehemently against Napoleon. And he was terrified if Napoleon is going to win. He said as follows, if Napoleon wins the war, then there is going to be great freedom for the Jewish people. Materially, the Jewish people will do very well. They will have better parnasa, they will, have, uh, they will be freed from the oppression. But spiritually, they're going to be influenced in a very bad way. And their hearts are going to be taken away from serving God, like happened in France and in Germany, where the reform movements and the other movements that walked away from traditional Torah observant Yiddishkeit, they caught on to the wave of freedom to free themselves also from the servitude of Hashem. That's why he says, even though if Alexander is going to win the war, there's going to be a lot of oppression and terrible suffering for the Jewish people physically, but the spiritual well-being of the Jewish people is at this point more important than the physical well-being. We're going to suffer, we're going to make it through the suffering, but our spiritual, our soul is going to remain intact. So France was always very considered a very dangerous klipa. So the Rebbe says like this, this was only up till the last hundred and so years. But once through the spread of Hasidus, which led the world in the final, final preparation for Mashiach, Kedusha has gathered enough strength, Klippa, the other side, has been weakened enough that we're able to enter into France and make a purification in France itself. And therefore he says that in the last couple of years, again he's talking in 1992, he says in the last 30 so years, Jewish institutions started opening up yeshivas and other shuls and great Jewish communities be opened up in France, settled in France permanently. And he says when you settle in a country permanently, not just you're visiting, because we know that every time you get lost in a, somewhere, you, you make a wrong turn, there's a godly purpose, you need to do some kind of a purification there. But there's a very big difference of the influence on the place you have when you pass by somewhere just because you're just passing by, you go there for a visit, or when you settle there permanently. When the Jews settled in, I mean permanently meaning until Mashiach comes, but the, when Jews settled in France, 
and they began learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, printing Jewish books. And then he says even more, thousands of balei tshuva, of returnees to Judaism, came in France. This made a major, it basically went into the soul of France, transformed it, transformed the sparks of holiness, so to speak, revealed it into Kedusha. And he even pointed to something very strange. And for the fact that the Rebbe spoke about this, it was really, really astounding. He said that there is the French national, national anthem. And generally says the national anthem of a country is very powerful. It's related to the ministering angel of that country. It's not just. It's connected to the very soul of the country. The French national an- anthem, and I don't know how you pronounce it, La, 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 la Marseille. What is it? La Marseille? What? Marseillaise. Yeah, that's what I read, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. Was a song, was a song, which is a song, which is the French national anthem, that at a certain point, Hasidim, when they lived in France, decided to take that tune, and they started singing a tune of Haderes Vamuna Lachaya Olamim, which is a song of, uh, yeah, that the, the, which we say on Shabbos. And they took the tune of the French national and applied it to that. They sang it for a couple of months, and he says a very strange thing happened. Suddenly the French decided that they're going to change the pace of the song. And which, the song which was, was really made, I think, during Napoleon's days, 200 years earlier, suddenly, I think in, in the year 1934, I'm not 1974, 75, they, which was six months after Hasidim started singing this nigan, the song was changed, its tempo, uh, and then they actually, a few years later, they changed it back. He says, but why did, why did this change happen? Now me and you have no idea, but the Rebbe says, it's possible to say is because the ministering angel above felt that his song was stolen from him and it became a Hasidic song. In other words, it went over from the world of the shell into the world of Kedusha, into the world of holiness. Therefore, he mentions over there that France is going to have a particular connection to the unfolding of the redemption. So again... I'm just trying to make sense of what we're seeing in the world today and trying to give a little commentary uh, about, you know, from what I've learned and what we can see. What is going to happen in France now, I'm not exactly sure, but it's kind of possible, is that, you know, evil, it's a responsibility of any citizen in the world to eradicate evil. This Islamo-fascists, these, these, these killers and murderers that are now all over the world, what are they spiritually? What, what really is over here? We spoke earlier that we separate the good from the bad. When we separate the good from the bad, what do we get? We get really good good, and we get really, really bad bad. This evil that we see now, people who celebrate when their daughters go up and kill other girls. Listen, we had a Palestinian today who was all excited that his daughter was murdered, martyred, when she tried to chase after other girls standing by a bus stop and trying to kill them. People that have such horror, people that are so ugly, people that will blow themselves up to shreds just to harm as many people, men, women, children that you've never met, just to destroy, just to bring horrific pain and suffering to the world. What is this? This is, this is the soul of evil. This is evil in all of its purity. All of its... Now, this is the responsibility of the rest of the world to get rid of this cancer. Because if you're not going to get rid of it, it's just going to destroy all of you, all of the world. But uh, people uh, haven't been doing that. 
is to call first of all evil, evil. To look it in the eye and say what it is and then go after it. It is the responsibility of the, uh, one of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, one of the seven Noahid laws. A civilized world requires that murderers and should, should, be, should be punished and should be, should, be, should be eradicated. What happened in France is uh, it looks like or it's possible that finally there will be a waking up, at least as it seems like, I don't know how long, because 9-11 it happened in America, and then it like, kind of like fizzled out as well. But, um, and we don't wish Chas V'Shalom any more catastrophes, even though it looks like that, the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that these terrorists are embedded all over Europe and all over who knows where. And, um, but it's quite possible, and again, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be shocking to me if the French are the ones who lead the world now, because it's not coming from the White House, if the French are the ones who lead the free world in a final, in the final work of eliminating these, this evil from the world so that we can bring in a world of Mashiach. As long as this evil is here, Mashiach can't be here. So this is a destruction. Which the, so it's interesting that Fra- France, as I mentioned earlier, has to do with the final birur, the final purification, and from there, it's possible, like we see that steps have been taken already, uh, to call for the entire, for all of civilized humanity to unify together to destroy evil. Um, that's just an interesting idea as it relates to what's happening. Now, going back to what I mentioned earlier about the significance of this amazing, beautiful wedding that is going to take place in Israel of this girl, as we mentioned earlier, who lost her father and her brother, killed in a terrorist attack, and a week later is making a wedding and inviting all the Jewish people on the 14th day of Kislev this Thursday for her wedding. What do we do as Jews after we finished purifying, elevating, and rectifying the world? What is our job next? Our job now is our complete unification with God, our marriage with God. We're busy throughout, till Mashiach comes, we're busy cleaning up the world, purifying the creation. But then when Mashiach's coming is called, it's called the Nesuyan, the marriage between Hashem and the Jewish people. Now, here's a very interesting idea. When um, the marriage between Hashem and the Jewish people is symbolized in the moon and the sun. The sun represents, is representing God, and the moon is representing the Jewish people. The sun, right, because the sun is the mashpiah, he's the one who's giving, and we're the recipients. So the moon is female, and the sun is male. And our relationship with God, we're the bride and he's the groom. Here's a very interesting question. We know that the moon, and you know, the fact that the Jewish people are compared to the moon, is the idea of, just like the moon, wanes, waxes and wanes, its light increases and its light diminishes, so too, this is the story of the Jewish people. We have our moments of glory and we have our moments of decline. The moments of glory and the moments of decline. When it looks like the world has finally ganged up on Israel and managed to destroy them completely, lo and behold, they come back stronger than ever. And that's the, the, the moon. But here's an interesting thing. You have two parts to the month. You have the first half of the month when the light of the moon is increasing till it reaches mid-month and it's in its full, 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 full brightness. Then you have the second half of the month in which it's declining. We find an interesting thing that all Jewish holidays are always in the first half of the month. 
or in the middle of the month. Pesach and Sukkot, first Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the beginning of the month. Um, Pesach and Sukkot in the middle of the month, which is representing the moon receiving its full light from God, all the blessings. The moon is shining, Knesset Yisrael, Israel is shining with godly blessings. And they're, and they, and they're a light onto the nations. Great. Um, Shavuos is also in the first, doesn't have its specific date of the month, but it also always comes out the first half of the month. Purim, the 14th day, for those in all over, for those who live in Shushan, the 15th day of the month. Hanukkah is the only holiday that comes out in the second half of the month, or at least most of the days of Hanukkah. The last day or two is already going into the next month. Now we know the second half of the month represents the decline of Israel, the decline of the Jewish people. How come Hanukkah is a holiday that is in the second half of the month, which represents a concealment, a decline, a darkening. Generally, we know that people are careful not to make any weddings at this, in the second half or okay, till around the 20th or the 25th, the people are not that careful. But generally, careful not to make weddings at the end of a month because it's a bad omen. Because it's not a, time, it's not a good time for the Jewish people. So Hanukkah, which is a time of victory, how come it comes out that this is the only holiday that's in the end of the month? the month of Kislev. Another, but there, now, this is Hanukkah. There's another holiday, and that is a less popular holiday, not necessarily um, um, uh, celebrated by all the Jewish people as of yet, and that is the yomtiv of what's called Yutes Kislev, the 19th day of Kislev, which that day of Kislev is the day of the liberation of Hasidic teachings. The Balatanya was, who, who was the scholarly the most scholarly of the students of the Holy Baal Shem Tev, who represented the mind of Hasidus, who was teaching Hasidus in a very, 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 very abundant fashion, was the source, was um, a target of a slander and accusation. He was put into jail, and there was a, he was imprisoned, and there was a, God forbid, a possibility that the light of Hasidus would be completely extinguished. We know that in addition to its challenge down here below, it was a challenge in heaven as well. There was an accusation against him that he's giving too much light. On the day of the 19th of Kislev, miraculously he was freed. This day became a Hasidic holiday, celebrated by Hasidim all over the world, a very special day. Now, even though as mentioned earlier, not all Jews recognize its value, that's because not all Jews have yet opened their eyes to the richness and the light of Hasidic teachings. The light of Hasidis is the light of Mashiach. It's not a separate thing. So now that Mashiach will come, everybody will see the brightness of this day. But interesting, the 19th of Kislev also comes out in the second half of a month. The 19th of the month, not the first half of the month. Why such a bright light is connected to the second half of the month and not the first half? So here there's a brilliant teaching that was discussed on that Shabbos, which is just so rich and so beautiful, but we don't have much time, I'm going to do it very quickly. And that will explain, as we said, we said, the significance of the 14th day of Kislev and that wedding. Because here's the idea, which is really, really fascinating. And that is that, um, in general, we have to ask a question. If the second half of the month, the light of the month is being distinguished, it's becoming less light, so why, in terms of numbers, do we increase the number of the month? That means that we count. Today's the first day of the month, second day, until we get to the 15th. When it gets to the 15th, we continue. The 16th month of Kislev is the 16th and the 17th. Really, in truth, if really the spiritual energy decreases, if the energy is at its peak in the middle of the month, then what? 
we should really have counted 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And then we get to 15, we go back to 14, 13, 12, we count down. Because now you don't have that same, you have some light, until you, know, you get back to zero. So but why, when we're counting, we're counting it with an increased number, which is a sign that even though it's, the light is being diminished, it's really increasing. It's not decreasing, it's really increasing. Because why would you give it, in Torah, everything is real. If you're giving it a higher number, it means there's more energy there. If there's more energy there, then it should be, it should be counted. Now you can say, I mean, just in simple, because Delta won't be distinguished. How will you know if it's the 14th? So you can figure that out. We could have written 14 up, 14 down. 14 Aleph, 14 Bays. 13 Aleph, 13 Bays. 13 A, 13 B. I mean, it wouldn't have been that, you know, we've, we've dealt with more com- complicated um, 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 calculations. So the must be that there is something about the second half of the month that's far more powerful than the first half of the month. And the idea is like this. You see, when the moon is receiving from the sun, which represents, as we said before, we receiving the light from God, it reaches its zenith, its complete receptiveness in the middle of the month, which is wow, powerful, great, awesome. But, even though it has, and then again it starts losing its light, but the, even when the moon is at its peak reception of the light of the sun, it's great, the moon has so much richness, but yet there's still a problem. The very fact that she will always remain a recipient, and she always needs the light of the sun, she doesn't have her own light, is a serious problem. If you have a student who will always be a student, and doesn't graduate to a point where they themselves can become a teacher and a light, or generate their own inspiration, their own, that's a problem. A person, when you, when you, 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 the ultimate achievement is when you can put someone on their own feet, that they have their own inspiration, their own ability, instead of always relying on you. With the moon, it seems like it's, it's always relying. It's the, it's the macabre, it's the recipient. The ultimate elevation of the moon is that it reaches a point where it stops being a receiver where it becomes a mashpia, where it becomes an influencer, and it becomes equal to the sun, it becomes as high as the sun, which it means, in other words, that the Jewish people become as godly, so to speak, as God, in which we don't need constantly illumination and inspiration coming from Hashem. It, we are as bright as He is. How can there be? There's no two gods. It is revealed how we are really Him and He is really us. It's not two separate entities. That's the ultimate fusion of the sun and the moon. It's not that the sun, see, even as long as we're dealing with, the, with, with light, right? it's the light, it's the bright, but it means that you're still a receiver. That's the significance of the second half of the month. Because let's for one moment understand, why does the second half of the month, the moon, get dark? So, in truth, and again, I'm not going through the physics of it, but in truth, the re- it has to do with the fact, the second half of the month, the moon actually gets closer to the sun. And as the moon gets closer to the sun, its light gets diminished. The first, the, the, the former half of the, of, the, of, the, of the month, when we talk about the Hebrew month, the moon is further, farther away from the sun. And here's what happens. The farther it gets, the brighter the moon gets. Now, again, this, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't, wouldn't really, it's not too difficult to understand how this works, but you'd really need to sit down and figure that, you know, scientifically what happens. But, what I'm, but we don't have time, and that's not the issue today. What I want to speak of more is the spiritual dynamics of what's happening over here. The reason why the moon, which is, represents the receiver, 
is brightest when it's the farthest away from the sun is because when she is, when you're close to your teacher and receiving light, you don't have the ability to shine that light to others because you're in a state of receiving. The only way you can become a mashpia, you can become a teacher, is when you go away from the source where you're receiving light. When you move away, the farther you away, then you become a somebody that can teach. Next to your source, you're nullified to your source. So that's why. The second half of the month, when the moon is getting closer to the sun, it's overwhelmed by the power of the sun, so she loses her light. When she goes, the second half of the, in the first half of the month, when she starts to be, when she's born again, it means she's going away. However, let's just go a little deeper over here and, and, and understand this a little better. You see, what is the real significance of, because really you can say, well, okay, even though the second half of the month she's getting really closer to the sun, but in terms of light, it's a diminishment. It's dark. The moon is dark. But really, as we said before, the second half of the month, something is increasing. What's increasing? What's increasing is like this. Every light, every emanation, every type of hashpah, every time one thing is influencing something else, which we call is the idea of shining a light, whether you're sharing thoughts, whether you're inspiring someone emotionally, intellectually, whatever it is that you're sharing or giving to someone, you cannot share the essence. The essence always remains in the source. What is shareable is only a little bit of a ray of that essence. There is a rule in Hasidic teachings. It says like this, Kol etzem, every essence, bilti mezgala, doesn't reveal itself. The revelation is only a ray of it, but not... If it's revealed, then it's not the essence. The essence is the essence. It's not revealable. Therefore... The essence to the recipient, to the recipient, the essence is considered darkness. The ray is considered light. Let's try to give a practical example. If I have an idea, I can, as much as I try to be a good teacher and to share this idea to the best I can, I can never share the idea to the fullest of how I understand it for myself. Because I'm limited. Communication is always limited. So as much as I can give over something of it, it's always limited in its, in its, in its community. If I want to, for, same as also with an emotion, if I want to share an emotion, you, you, so how many times do we leave frustrated that we gave something over where someone, the person says, I got you, I get you, I get what you're saying, but you know, they're not really getting it because it's not the essence. I can't share the essence. I can share only the ray of the essence. The first half of the moon, the first half of the month, we the Jewish people are receiving from God, God's light. Till we reach the 15th day of the month, we receive all of Hashem's light. Amazing. All of Hashem's light. But then we realize that we only got light. We didn't get the essence. So we try to get closer to the sun. We want to get not just the light, we want to get the essence. Now here's the thing. When you're going to the essence, you're going to darkness because the essence is not revealed. The essence is unrevealable. So that's why the light starts becoming diminished in the second half of the month, not because of a decrease, but because of an increase. There is a decrease of light, but there is an increase of essence. See what's happening? The two are, few, are, are merging. Now, again, technically in the moon of the sun, it's not, it's not reality. But in concept, what it represents, metaphorically, is a unification between the 
mashpia, the influencer, and the recipient in a manner of essence, where the two become totally fused as one. Now, here's the thing. This that we say that an essence can't be revealed, but you can't reveal the essence. How can and the answer is, is only when you and me are two different people, two different beings. But when the two are really one, then there's no problem with revealing the essence. An essence is only to reveal it to an outsider, but not to someone who's intrinsically one. The ultimate element of marriage is that husband and wife become one, in which their connection to each other is not to each other's light, but to each other's essence. It's almost like I can say, there's no one who really, really gets me, but, but my spouse does, because they are connected to me in essence, not in, not in light. And that's what happens. When you come to the second half of the month, the moon begins its journey of union with the sun beyond light to a state of total fusion of essence. When it fuses in essence, even though the light is less light, there is an increase of depth of connection, of the essence being revealed until they're totally one. That expresses itself in Hanukkah. Let's take a look. Hanukkah comes out the second half of the month, but... The moonlight is getting less, but the candles of Hanukkah are increasing. Isn't that interesting? You're, in, you're adding light of Hanukkah every day. As it becomes a darker night, less moonlight, less brightness for the Jewish people, so to speak, there is more Hanukkah light. How can there be more Hanukkah light at the same time? The answer is the light of the Hanukkah menorah is not the light of a ray. The light of the Hanukkah menorah is the essence. Essence, more, you're tapping into essence, more essence, more revelation. Now this is true about every month. It's true about Kislev more than every month. Kislev, why? Let's see for one moment. Kislev is the third month of the year. Tishrei, Cheshvan, Kislev. The year has 12 months, but you can divide them into two groups. Six months of summer, six months of winter. In the summer we see an interesting thing. That the six months of summer, which begin in Nisan, Pesach, the third month is the month of marriage. Because Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. Sivan is the month that the Jewish people get married to God. We have our union. The Torah is given. We have our marriage. So you see that out of all, because number three represents unifying two, two, two parts. One, two, is two, and then three is the fusion. So therefore, out of all months, which month represents union between sun and moon more than all months? The third. But you have the third month in the summer. You have the third month in the winter. What's the difference between summer months and winter months? So here's an interesting idea. In the summer we get the Torah in Shavuos. But we get the external part of the Torah. The Torah of these days. In the month of Kislev, which is the third month in the winter, we don't get, we also have the marriage. But we have the next stage in marriage which is the Torah that we're going to have when Mashiach comes, which is an infinitely higher, deeper, inner Torah. That's why the month of Kislev is the month of all, of the Yutas Kislev, the 19th of the month of Kislev, which celebrates the teachings of Hasidus to the world, because this is the light, of the new light of Mashiach. But here's an interesting thing. Shavuos comes out in the first half of the month of, the third month, 
The 19th of Kislev comes out in the second half of the third month of the winter. Why is that? And the answer is because the revealed part of the Torah is God's light. It's like the sun shining light onto the moon. It's light. The hidden part of the Torah, the hidden Torah, that's the essence. That's not light. Since it's the essence, it doesn't reveal itself in the first half of the month where you have increased light, which is only ray, external. You have increased essence. That's also hinted to in the name Kislev. Kislev, which is the name of the month, has made up of two words. Kis is case. Case really means covered, that which is covered. Lave 36. Lave is Lamed Vav is 36. This is the contrast of what is hidden and what is revealed. Let me just explain this very quickly. Case means what is hidden. What's hidden? The essence is hidden. The essence we said before is unrevealable. What is Lamed Vav 36? 36 stands for the word, 36 means ultimate revelation. In Hebrew, 36 is also the gematria of the word Eleh. Eleh means these are, something in its full manifestation, full revelation. In Kabbalah, all godly revelation comes from God's six emotions. Each emotion has all the other emotions in it. So six times six, 36. So 36 represents full expression. Case means the essence that is not expressible. What does case lamedvav means? Essence revealed. That's what kislev means. Essence revealed. That's why this is a month where the second half of the month is more important than the first half of the month. First half of the month we experience a closeness to God with, which is God's rays, revelation. Second half of the month unification at a core, at essence, where we and God are one. And God can share His essence with us because that's Mashiach. That's Kislev. Now we'll also understand, and that's why Hanukkah is the same thing. The holiday of Hanukkah related to the light of, it comes from oil. Oil is the innermost of the Torah, the essence. Oil is the essence. All coming out of the second half. By the way, the 19th day, 19 is from, when you take God's name, Yud Ke Vavke is Gematria 26. Yud Ke Vavke is 26. But when you take only the inner hidden letters that are not expressed, you take from the word Yud, you, don't, you leave out the Yud and you take just the Vav and the Dalet. Yud spells Yud Vav Dalet. And Hey, you just take an Aleph. And in Vav, it's just the Vav. And in the Hey, you get 19. It's Gematria Chava. Okay, 19. What is 19? 19 is the essence, what's hidden inside the Yud. The essence of God, the miloi, the inner letters, is the essence, that which you don't see when you... When the word is spelled, you don't see it, because that's not the expression of it, it's its essence. So 19 is the essence of the very, very Torah at the very, very core. That's the 19th. comes out that the ultimate marriage between God and the Jewish people expresses itself in the... Wait, 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 one more thing. That's why the sages tell us that God says to the Jewish people, um, in the Medrash, in Parshas Bo, the Medrash says that God says to the Jewish people, in this world, I give you only the moon. When Mashiach will come, I'm giving you the entire sky. I'm giving you the sun, the moon, and everything. What does that mean? And because, why? And the Medrash brings a marshal, it's a marshal to a king. 
who betrothed the woman. So first they just have an engagement. And he gives her a small present. Once they're ready, to, they're holding by their marriage, he gives her like huge presents. So the same is also God gave the Jewish people only the moon. That means only the external part of the Torah. As we said before, only the light, the sun. The moon is a recipient. When Mashiach will come, he will give him the essence. That's, that's the light of Mashiach, the Torah of Mashiach, Hasidus, which is that. It's the essence. It allows for the sun and the moon to become totally one. Comes out that the 15th of Kislev, which represents the, the coming together of moon and sun, that's why the full light, 14th and 15th, because, by the way, when you say a full moon, it's always between the 14th and the 15th. It's not always the 15th, it's between the 14th and the 15th. So that's why the Jewish people had the two main kings that were our kings, were David and Shlomo, David and Shlomo, which David is the 14th generation, and Shlomo is the 15th generation from Avram Avinu. That's when we are in our brightest state. In the month of Kislev, it means more than just a regular month. Usually it's, an, it's, it's the marriage between God and the Jewish people, a marriage of light, not a marriage of essence. But on the 15th of 14th and 15th of Kislev, we experience the ultimate union between Hashem and the Jewish people, one that will express itself that in the following days after the 15th of Kislev, it's not getting darker, it's getting brighter in the sense that we are one already, and once we're one, then the, the essence is revealed. So the essence is expressed as darkness, not as light. Less light, more essence. That's the idea. Comes out that the 14th and 15th is... He, 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 the Rebbe says in that talk, is the ultimate marriage between God and the Jewish people. And as I said earlier, with divine providence, this bride who is inviting all the Jewish people to her wedding and calls it the million-person wedding of the Jewish people showing their triumph over their enemies are, is getting married on the 14th of Kislev on this very powerful, auspicious day of union between God and the Jewish people. Why we're seeing this animosity against Israel and against the Jewish people, it's the last onslaught of evil against God. What we don't realize, the world doesn't realize, is that the Jew, every Jewish man and woman is mamish one with God himself. When they hate with an inexplainable, it really doesn't make any sense, an irrational hatred against the Jewish people, when we are the ones who brought more goodness to the world than any other people, just in terms of innovations, in medicine, in science, in everything, it's unbelievable what the Jews... It's an irrational, inexplainable hatred. What it really is, it's evil that it hates anything to do with God. At this point, what this bride is expressing is that the Jew is one with God himself. An attack on a Jew, stabbing a Jew, is stabbing, God forbid, thrusting a knife into chas the heart of all hearts. God says, messing with my people, you're poking me in the eye. Babas enai. And this is what we, what we need to know and the world should know. That whatever is happening today and anything that anybody writes, even those little comments that people write about little anti-Semitic comments and things about, these are all... Messing with the, it's messing at the wrong time of history with the wrong people. We, the Jewish people, will be victorious. Our avoda right now is to stand up and be ready for the redemption with simcha, with joy, as hard as it is, to increase gatherings of goodness and 
more Torah, more mitzvahs, more kindness. And the main thing is to celebrate as much as we can with other Jewish people. And to know that we're standing mamish at the, at the, at the beginning of the redemption. May we merit to see the ultimate wedding of Hashem, the Jewish people, with a joy forever and ever, with a, with a, with a unbelievable, indescribable wedding of Oyd Yishama Biyari Yehuda, B'chutz Yerushalayim, Kol Sasim, Kol Simcha, Kol Chasan, Kol Kala, Pimheira Biyameinu Mamish.